Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Avi Loeb. Avi is a theoretical physicist and cosmologist at Harvard University. During our conversation, Avi talks about his interest in science, humanity's search for truth, his view that the interstellar object Amuamua is an alien spacecraft, his book Extraterrestrial, and the Galileo Project, which he leads, which will embark on the scientific search for evidence of extraterrestrial technological artifacts. No matter the final truth of the nature of Amuamua, I admire Avi's courage and risk-taking in stating what he believes to be true, no matter the social costs. Standing alone is hard, and ad hominem attacks are easy. Cultural and scientific progress depends on the irreverent lone thinker, and we easily forget how reliant we are on such people for the subtle expansion of society's Overton window. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Avi. All right, Avi. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time, inviting me over to your house. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you and, and get to know you a little bit. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, we are going to have a wild conversation today, I'm sure. And we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording about your upbringing. And I would love to start, you alluded to the fact that you were born on a farm. What's the, what's the basis, uh, what's the genesis story of your life? Where were you born and raised? What's, what's kind of that story? Yeah, I was born on a farm in Israel mm-hmm. um, in a small village. And um, uh, the reason it's important is because uh, much of my life is, was shaped by that, by that experience uh, uh, in the sense that um, I, I became very close to nature, much more than people uh, mm-hmm. growing up uh, close to nature. And I used to collect eggs every afternoon. We had chicken and I used to... Uh, on, on weekends, go to the hills of the village, uh, driving a tractor and uh, read philosophy books. Uh, I was interested in the big picture and uh, the biggest questions we have about our existence. And of course, we don't have answers to those questions. But at the time, as a kid, I was fascinated by philosophical questions. And I wanted to pursue that uh, in life. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there was an obligatory military service at age 18. And I I uh, had to decide what to do uh, during that time, and I had two options. Uh, I was recruited for an elite uh, program in the Israeli military that mm-hmm. is called Talpiot, that allowed me to pursue physics and, astro- and uh, mathematics for the benefit of the defense of the country. Uh, and uh, other than that, I could have been a soldier running in the field with, with a gun mm-hmm. and attached to my back. and. Uh, I thought that physics is closer to philosophy. I was good at that. So I did that as a compromise, so to speak. And Mm. uh, as a result, um, I ended up finishing my PhD in physics at age 24. And I also initiated a project that was funded by the Strategic Defense Initiative of uh, President Reagan back in the mid-80s. And it was the first program that was funded uh, internationally. 
uh, by the Star Wars uh, initiative. Yeah. If you think about it uh, in retrospect, Star Wars um, and uh, extraterrestrial civilizations have some connection. Um, and But I didn't know it at the time. And uh, we got uh, funded at a few million dollars a year and the whole department grew around this project that I uh, led together with uh, an experimentalist. And uh, I visited Washington DC quite often. Um, and uh, as a result of those visits, uh, at one time I decided to go to Princeton, New Jersey. I was told that there is an institute for advanced study where the best scholars uh, uh, reside. And uh, I sent uh, this uh, request to visit the place to the administrator there. And she said, send me your CV. before We don't just allow anyone to come here. And um, and then I sent her and uh, she allowed me to come in and sh she said, there is only one faculty member who has time, free time, to speak with uh, visitors and that's Freeman Dyson. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, I know this name from textbooks, I'll be glad to speak with him. And then he introduced me to an astrophysicist, John Bacall, that he asked me whether I know him. I said, I've never heard of him. And I, frankly, I didn't know how the sun shines and I didn't know anything about astrophysics and John invited me for a visit uh, uh, about half a year later for a full month and asked about me and so forth and made uh, an offer uh, for a five-year fellowship after I finished my military service. Uh, and I said at that point, it's just like the offer you know, that you can't refuse in The Godfather. Yeah. I said, uh, I have to accept that. But uh, when I was in the military, first of all, I was also good uh, uh, physically, I mean, I, I, I was uh, among the top three in my high school in sports. And uh, when I was in the military, I was offered to be in an elite uh, unit that is uh, uh, like the Alpha Force, you know. Uh, and I declined that because, again, intellectual interests were more important to me. Uh, the only relic from that now is that since the pandemic started, I'm jogging every morning at 5 a.m. for half an hour. Uh, enjoying the company of birds, uh, ducks, uh, uh, wild turkeys, and rabbits, you know, and uh, again, connection to nature. And by the way, space itself, for me, represents the unspoiled nature that humans have not reached yet mm. to spoil. And uh, I connect to that much more. I don't have any footprint on social media, so I don't really care how many likes I get. And at some point, my book uh, became... Extraterrestrial that came out six months ago became bestseller, and uh, uh, my publicist in the UK said, "Good job, Avi! You are uh, selling the book quite uh, nicely." And I said, "I'm not selling the book. I'm just conveying my message. You know, if the public wouldn't connect to that and the book wouldn't sell, I wouldn't change my message. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that the book sells just means that the public resonates with the common sense that I'm trying to advocate for." And uh, I wouldn't change my message. So once again, I, I, you know, the way I think um, is was shaped by my upbringing on a farm where I don't care much about you know social pressure or what people say, and I I, I basically try to um, describe what seems right to me and uh, what uh, I I feel nature is about and. Um, and that's more important to me than people, you know. And, and we live just close to the Walden Pond here where yeah. Henry Thoreau argued that, you know, during the Industrial Revolution that uh, people should uh, 
uh, move closer to nature rather than uh, you know be engulfed in cities and uh, in, in uh, social interactions with each other. They should become independent uh, in, in their thinking and so forth. And I very much resonate with that. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that you were always interested in the big picture. And I assume that means also the big questions of life. And you alluded to the fact that we still to this day don't have great answers for some of those questions. Right. What, what were those subjects, the questions that you really were curious about that you wanted to go after in your life? Right. So the one distinction between science and philosophy is that philosophy really addresses the most important questions, but it doesn't have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> and science addresses the questions for which we can get an answer, at least traditional science. Nowadays, you have branches of uh, physics, for example, that talk about things we, can, we can't observe, like the multiverse. I would regard that more as a, uh, as a branch of philosophy than uh, physics because in my mind, in my vocabulary, physics is about testing your ideas against experiments. And um, the most fundamental question we have is the meaning of life. Yeah. What, does, what does it mean? You know, why? I mean, we are born into this world like actors put on a stage and we have no idea what the play is about. And people are trying to give meaning to their life as time goes on during their life. And uh, all of this appears a bit, bit, a little bit uh, uh, superfluous to me. I mean, it's uh, we we don't really know. I mean, we live for such a short time, you know. And um, and um, uh, the first thing we think is that the play is about us, you know. And uh, of course, that's natural, but uh, it's the wrong assumption because uh, the first thing you notice as a cosmologist, as, a, as an astronomer studying the universe, is that the stage is. Uh, huge, you know, it's 10 to the power 26 times bigger than our body. We are clearly not at the center of it, like uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle used to argue. And for a thousand years, people believed him because it flattered their ego to be at the center of the universe. But, um, you know, Copernicus and Galileo demonstrated that m most likely, you know, the earth moves around the sun. It's not at the center. And, uh, and of course, the philosophers at the time didn't agree with Galileo and they didn't want to look through his telescope because they know they they said they know the answer that the sun moves around the earth and they put him in house arrest yeah. and that only maintained their ignorance so you know since then of course we realize we are not at the center we now have astronauts looking at earth from a distance and they can easily tell that the earth moves around the sun i mean that's obvious uh but Beyond that, um, you know, we also know today is, is something that was not known uh, to Galileo, and that is that uh, the Earth-Sun system is not really rare. I mean, half of the Sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. We know that from the Kepler satellite. And uh, that implies that um, our backyard is not unique. And uh, once again, nature tells, tells us, don't feel that you are... <laughs> an important player in this in this uh, play you know it, it, we are just one actor out of you know tens of billions of others probably um and uh, but if you ask the scientific community they will tell you you know we need extraordinary evidence before we will contemplate discussing the possibility that there are other civilizations out there we we don't want to discuss it until there is extraordinary evidence and i say what do you mean by that? That's a very arrogant approach. Uh, actually, it makes common sense to assume that if you replicate the circumstances on Earth <clears throat> on tens of billions of other planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone, and then there are trillion 
other galaxies like the Milky Way in the observable volume of the universe, it's very likely that you end up with similar outcomes. And most stars formed before the sun. And therefore, there were civilizations that predated us. We are not special or unique. That should be the underlying assumption. Rather than asking for extraordinary evidence to demonstrate that we are not alone, uh, we should ask the opposite. You know, and we should search. That's the obvious thing to do, to look for evidence. You know, that's what science is about. And I find it really disturbing that this is not a mainstream activity within mm-hmm. astronomy right now. So altogether, I would say <clears throat> that um, if we find other actors out there, they might tell us what the play is about, you know. And that is the most fundamental question. What is the meaning of life? We might find out that, for example... Uh, that those civilizations are so advanced, they can produce life uh, in their laboratories. Uh, They can produce universes in their laboratories. These are things that, uh, qualities that we assign to God, you know, to, to divine entities in our religions. And imagine if technology can accomplish the same task. Yeah. And it, you know, it will change everything. And so my point is, By studying the universe, you can address deep philosophical questions. So for me, doing astrophysics ended up being married to my true love, even though it was an arranged marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, I'm curious about your own development. I think you're right that we all as infants, as small children, as uneducated people have an egoic idea that we are the center of the universe and then that gets that idea gets we're disabused of that very quickly as we get older and and uh become more literate more educated i'm curious how that affected you in your development you know if there were ideas that you held as a younger man uh that you had to give up on or that there was a significant shift of perspective in your perspective of yourself and your own life as you were growing up and becoming more educated personally well i remember many instances where i sat with so-called adults as a kid and the adults would tell me not to ask some questions or not to think in some directions and you know it really was frustrating to me because it was clear to me that the adults don't know more than i know and they pretend that they know more and they want to look respectable so they invent answers to questions that they don't know the answers to and that really troubled me and i i i hated that fake image of knowing more than you actually know and uh, if you ask people that uh, knew me from my childhood they would tell you that i haven't changed much and i see science as a privilege of maintaining your childhood curiosity so i remained in that sense innocent uh, willing to ask questions even though i'm bruised on social media but i don't have any footprint on social media so i don't care if many scientists ridicule the discussion on extraterrestrial civilizations, I don't really care about it because, you know, we can uh, we can decide not to look through our windows just because people ridicule it, but that wouldn't prevent ne- our neighbors from being out there, whether we look through the window or not. Just like the sun did not move around the Earth, irrespective of whether the philosophers looked through Galileo's telescope or not. So it's really a question about us Uh, being open-minded and looking at evidence to guide us. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I was asked uh, at a forum, I had uh, 1,100 interviews over the past six months. And in one of them, I was asked, um, how do you define an intelligent culture? And I said, that's a culture that is guided by the principles of science. And what do I mean by that? 
I mean cooperation and sharing of evidence-based knowledge. And there are two elements to that. One is cooperation and sharing. And if, if you look at human history, we didn't cooperate much. Most recently about COVID-19, you know, the information from Wuhan, China was not really shared with the rest of the world. And uh, it could have saved lives. And you ask yourself, uh, should politics enter into uh, considerations of life and death? And I say no. I mean, it should have been shared openly by the Chinese government. And, uh, you know, and, and you look at the Second World War and, you know, the 75 million people died in that war, 3% of the world population at the time. Uh, that's much more than the COVID-19 uh, death at all so far and it was a, a devastating blow to humanity and it was driven by racism i mean two-thirds of the jewish population in europe were, were killed and uh it was the nazi regime that tried to feel superior relative to other people that makes very little sense so the idea of sharing and cooperating apparently is not clear if you look at human history it's not being practiced very often and we waste a lot of resources on trying to feel superior relative to other people you know some nations relative to other and that's not a sign of intelligence okay so that's my first point and the second element of science is uh, evidence-based knowledge and Rather than assuming we know the answer in advance, uh, we should look through our telescopes, for example, for the answers. You know, that's what Galileo said. Uh, and that's what we do in the Galileo project that we just initiated. But, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was an article in, Na uh, in Nature Astronomy magazine by a philosopher who tried to argue, using philosophical reasoning, that the object to which my book is dedicated, called Oumuamua, that was discovered in 2017, must be a natural object. Uh, and my point when I read that was, my thinking was, haven't we learned something over the past four centuries since Galileo time that we shouldn't rely on philosophical arguments, but rather just look through our telescopes and get a high-resolution image? You know, that we can clear up this subject. It's not about philosophy. It's not a philosophical question. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I do think that our civilization will be much better off if we were to rely on the principles of science. And, uh, you know, that could save us. But unfortunately, we are not at the moment. And that includes even scientists. That's my point. It's not just the general public that dismisses the value of science on some occasions and, and so forth. It's actually scientists that say... You know, we don't want to look at data. Uh, we know that Oumuamua, this object from 2017, is a rock. Or scientists saying, let's discuss the multiverse. Let's discuss the string theory landscape, even though we can't test it during our lifetime. And, and let's define it as a mainstream activity. And let's do intellectual gymnastics about it, which is practically similar to asking how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin, because you can't test it experimentally. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, you know, it becomes a mainstream activity and scientists give each other awards and they demonstrate that they are smart by doing fancy mathematics around these subjects. Uh, but to me, it's a betrayal of the definition of science or, or physics where it's, you're supposed to test your ideas against evidence, against data. And if you are unable to test it during your lifetime, then you might waste your lifetime on an idea that is not real. And let me give you an example. Um, Bernie Madoff, right? So Bernie Madoff had a beautiful idea. He said, give me your money and I'll make more of it irrespective of what the stock market does. 
And that was a beautiful idea for him, but it was also a beautiful idea for all the people that gave him their money. I mean, why would anyone give a man their money to a person unless they believe that it's a beautiful idea? So they gave him the money. Everyone was happy. Bernie Madoff was happy that he has more money. The people that gave the money were happy because it was a beautiful idea. So what went wrong? What went wrong was uh, that when they did the experiment and asked for their money back, they didn't get it. Yeah. So he was put in jail. So here is an experimental test. And this is called a Ponzi scheme. So how do you know if your idea is a Ponzi scheme or is real? The only way to find out is by doing the experiment. So you can't just say, you know, it's a beautiful idea. Therefore, it makes a lot of sense for a lot of people to uh, believe in it, uh, even if we will never know within my lifetime whether it's real or not, whether it describes nature. Because then you might be spending your life on a Ponzi scheme. Hmm. I, I love the comment you made earlier about, about children and maintaining your innocence as you grew older. And I think you're right. If you watch little children, they're natural experimenters and natural scientists. This is how they learn skills in the world. And I think one of the things that, in my observation of human nature, seems to happen with a lot of kids is they are raised in some form of an ideological environment where certain ideas, certain beliefs are encouraged by their communities, their parents, et cetera. Did you experience anything like that? I'm, I'm curious if you were raised with any kind of, you know, either religious tradition or ideological political views that were imposed upon you that you had to reject, uh, or was that really not a part of your upbringing? Well, uh, most um, people in Israel are secular, yeah. uh, even though we have we had uh, strong traditions. You know, there were holidays and so forth. But uh, I grew up on a secular basis, so there wasn't anything forced on me in terms of uh, maintaining the rules of the Jewish religion, for example. And therefore, you know, I did uh, visit, of course, Orthodox communities. And I should tell you an anecdote that um, uh, a couple of months ago... Um, an Orthodox Jewish magazine called Ami in Brooklyn, New York City, uh, decided to have a cover story on my book, Extraterrestrial, and yeah. uh, they interviewed me and then featured it. And a colleague of mine in uh, at Harvard University, Stephen Greenblatt, uh, sent me an email saying, um, it looks like the Orthodox uh, are much more open-minded towards your ideas than your colleagues, <laughs> which was... A little bit funny. Uh, of course, when I visited the uh, Orthodox communities, you know, I, I raised a lot of questions, you know, asking them about what they believe in. And um, and they regarded that as an opportunity to perhaps convert me to Orthodoxy because someone that shows interest in asking questions is a potential recruit. Uh, someone that doesn't pay attention at all uh, is more difficult to recruit. So they tried, but they didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as you got older, right? I mean, you, it seems like have tried to live a life where you are led by your own curiosity and allow the evidence to speak for itself. Um, and I want to get into your book and your, your ideas and, and views of Mora Mora, but, uh, what is your current worldview? I know you mentioned earlier that as an astronomer, when you look ar around the universe, you begin to take in the reality of the fact that we are a very small uh, story and a much larger story that's happening in, in the universe. How do you view human life, given your worldview currently? Right. So um, an important milestone in that context was the fact that both my parents passed away uh, over the past few years. And you know, that changed my perspective uh, in a sense because I recognized that uh, we live a short time and therefore uh, 
we should focus on substance rather than impressing each other. You know that uh, we should keep our eyes on the ball, not on the audience, so to speak. And um, you know, it's sort of like this uh, statement in Gun with the Wind. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Uh, that's pretty much what I felt. Uh, I just want to. Um, say what I think is right and irrespective of what others are saying around me. And of course, I expected that people will respond to the content of what I'm saying. But what I find out, found out uh, throughout the past year, for example, is uh, that people are not playing it fair. Um, when they disagree with you, they're not just disagreeing with you, they're trying to sabotage the entire effort, uh, you know, aggressively. Basically, talking to my students or postdocs and trying to tell them not to work on subjects that I find exciting. Mm. And to me, that sounds like an invasion of uh, academic freedom because, okay, you can disagree on a, a topic of research. You might say, oh, it would lead nowhere. But in that case, you should just let the other person pursue it, especially if a project like Galileo is using funds that, are, that were not originally uh, intended for science. You know, the, we're not using National Science Foundation funds. We are getting funds from uh, private donors. And in that case, people should say, okay, that's great. Let them look for evidence. If they don't find anything, it will just uh, reinforce what we were saying all along, that there is nothing there to find. And uh, just let them do it. Yeah. Uh, I would expect that to be the attitude. But instead people are aggressively trying to bring it down. And you ask yourself, why would scientists do that? I mean, what good does it serve rather than uh, basically uh, to, to have a self-fulfilling prophecy, to say something will not succeed and, 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 and then aggressively bring it down so that they can say, look, I told you so. Yeah. And I find that to be inappropriate. It's not a healthy intellectual environment where you let many flowers bloom and see which one looks most beautiful because the point is if we are not searching for wonderful things we will never find them you know for wonderful things and uh it's a self-fulfilling prophecy on the one hand to say we need extraordinary evidence to be discussing extraterrestrial intelligence and at the same time not fund any search and ridicule anyone who attempts to fund such a research i mean I thought when I wrote my book that people would just say, okay, we don't want to fund this research and we want extraordinary evidence. But now I see that when I get funded by someone external, that, that by itself is also a problem to those people. And I don't understand that. Why should that be a problem? Let many flowers bloom. Let this project collect the data. We're just trying, you know, we're not invading anyone's territory. We're just saying, let's collect the evidence and see what the unidentified aerial phenomena are all about, okay? Mm -hmm. The government, which is the most conservative organization, uh, you know, had a report delivered to Congress saying, we are not doing our job. We don't know what some objects flying in the sky of the U.S. are all about. So that's an unusual admission that the most conservative uh, organization, the, the intelligence agencies uh, within the government in Washington, D.C., say there are things we don't fully understand. So I say, 
Okay, well, this subject is a serious matter, right? The former CIA directors, Brennan and Woolsey, former President Barack Obama are saying these are real objects. They looked at the classified data. This is a serious matter. You hear serious people talking about it seriously. I say, okay, let's move it away from the talking points of politicians, uh, military personnel to the realm of science. What could be wrong about it? Uh, we are using telescopes to look at the sky. Most of the sky is unclassified. Uh, over the past few weeks, I got funded uh, at nearly $2 million from people I've never <laughs> knew. Uh, you know, I got an email from the administrator in the astronomy department at Harvard saying, you have a new research fund. And I wrote to her, what do you mean? I, that never happens in academia. You know, I, I was department chair for nine years and three terms, you know, the longest serving chair in the astronomy department at Harvard. And <laughs> I've never seen such a thing that a faculty member would get a fund without even meeting the donor, without knowing about the donor, without knowing who the donor is. Never happens. But it happened to me. And then, uh, uh, you know, over the past two weeks, there were two multi-billionaires uh, at, at this porch that we are speaking in. And uh, they came to ask me questions about my book and they showed interest in my research. And, you know, that's unusual. And, uh, and uh, the bottom line is that I got nearly $2 million for research. And I say... Okay, this money came from a source, uh, you know, that is curious about this question. And why would the scientific community, or at least some scientists, have a problem with that? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm just interested in getting to the bottom of the identity of this UAP. Uh, at the same time, also, of objects like Oumuamua, trying to figure out their nature. If it turns out to be a natural origin for all of them, so be it. You know, we will clear up the fog and move on. But it appears as if some people do not want to look through our telescopes, which is reminiscent of what happened with the philosophers during the days of Galileo. So that's why we call the project the Galileo Project. But what I'm saying, in addition to the message about looking for evidence, is that some scientists are betraying the trademark of science. They don't want the evidence to be collected. They would ridicule it and try to sabotage a group trying to pursue it. Hmm. It seemed to me that there was a tipping point, at least in America, when 60 Minutes ran their piece about the mm -hmm. UAPs. And that reaches a very mainstream audience in the U.S. and a very large audience in the U.S. And just anecdotally, personally, that seemed to bring this issue to light to people who otherwise never would have talked about this subject. Um, I want to double down on the question I had asked you before. Prior to your your own personal experience, the resistance that you have gotten, when friends of yours, you know, colleagues of yours, students of yours ask you the question, how did we get here? Uh, what is the meaning of life? What what has been your historic answer to that? And what is your current answer? Maybe you're fully agnostic to that and we, we don't know enough information from your judgment to be able to begin to approach that question. But how do you address that? Well, I say... Um you know, we don't know the full picture yet. And if we find a more intelligent uh, culture out there, then uh, let's ask them. You know, maybe they have better clues because our science was around for about a century. That's, that's very short time compared to the age of the Earth. You know, the Earth is a four and a half billion years old. And uh, 
I can imagine that within a thousand years or a million years from now, we might have much better answers because we will have much more advanced uh, science uh, as long as we survive that long mm. uh, and not destroy our environment and, and basically uh, inflict uh, wounds on ourselves, so to speak. Um, but uh, another way to shortcut into our future is to find others that advance to that stage already and ask them. So... You know, it may feel like cheating in an exam where you look at over the shoulder of a student next to you for the answers, but um, I don't care. There is no teacher looking around our shoulders as far as I'm concerned, and I, I would be happy to know the answer. And, and um, uh, I'm agnostic, you know. It, it's still a puzzle to me as to wh whether there is a meaning to life. Maybe there is none, or maybe there is a deeper meaning. And uh, one possible meaning is, you know, that... Um, life on earth was uh, perhaps um, seeded by a more advanced form of life uh, somewhere else or is being monitored or you know and a lot of the attributes we assign to a divine entity can be dis assigned to a more intelligent species out there you know and um, so um, I think we should just search because we have the ability to do that and uh, you know, it will change the way we think about ourselves. And maybe we will behave more intelligently mm. once we realize there is a more advanced civilization out there. All the differences we have among ourselves are really minuscule compared to the difference between us as a human species and something much more advanced. Now, I don't think the first contact would be with biological creatures. I don't think so because, you know, we were not uh, selected by Darwinian evolution to uh, survive interstellar travel. You know, the, our body is pretty much adjusted to conditions we find here on the surface of Earth. And um, therefore, it would make little sense to send humans or other creatures into space and the same for, our, you know, other forms of life out there. Uh, it would make much more sense to send the artificial intelligence systems. Uh, they are already driving our cars you know some cars and they within a decade they will make medical decisions and uh, they would outsmart us so you can think of them as smart kids that we are grooming you know like you teach them early on the principles by which you want them to approach the world and the goals that they you want them to accomplish and and then you send them and they become autonomous and uh, that's very useful given that the distances between stars are so great, you know, there is no time for them to get guidelines for any action from their sender. So you can just imagine us sending AI systems into space equipped with 3D printers so that they can reproduce themselves on other planets if they want to. And if there was another technological civilization that already did that simply because most stars predated the sun, you know, they they were a billion years earlier than, than we are. And, um, and as a result, there were other cultures, even one of them that was capable of sending AI systems with 3D printers. Then, then we might be living in a reality where such probes populate the entire Milky Way galaxy already. Not because we exist and because we attracted the attention of anyone. It's just because they were sent to all the habitable planets in the Milky Way galaxy a long time ago. And by now they're here, okay, mm. and unrelated to us. And how do we find out? We just look without making assumptions. There is this paradox that Enrico Fermi uh, asked, uh, where is everybody? 
And the answer is maybe they are here. We just need to check. Uh, and if you don't check, you would not know. Now, uh, you know, uh, if you were to show a cell phone to a caveman, the caveman would say, oh, it's just a shiny rock because the caveman is used to playing with rocks all of his life. So that's not the end of the story. You can take the cell phone and press a button and record the voice of this caveman. Uh, you can press another button and uh, take a photograph of the, of the caveman. And, and then the caveman would realize, oh, no, it's not a rock, it's something else. And the same is true for us. If we get enough information on objects that appear to be floating around Earth, uh, then we will figure out that they are artificial and not natural. It, would look, it wouldn't look like a rock. We would see the bolts, we would see the screws on an object. You know, it would not be a rock. Yeah. Uh, that's obvious. So my point is, once again, it's not a philosophical question. We can just demonstrate that something is artificial. Yeah. And you mentioned Darwinian evolution in your previous answer, and I'm curious if given where you sit right now with your perspective on you know, life on Earth and life in the universe, if you are still persuaded by that theory generally, at least in the big picture and its primary principles. Is that something that you've thought a lot about? What are your, what are your views on that generally? Um, on, 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 say, ask it again. The, the, whether, on whether you find validity and truth in the general theory of evolution, Dar the Darwinian theory of evolution, well, as related to human beings and life on Earth. I think... Um, of Darwinian uh, evolution uh, in a sense that goes beyond biology, beyond uh, biological creatures, because I do think that eventually AI systems will outsmart us mm. and you can make them uh, to be much more resilient, for example, to cosmic rays if they travel in between stars. So, uh, you know, in a broader sense, uh, Darwinian uh, selection would imply that uh, the systems that are more resilient to interstellar travel will be the ones that dominate the Milky Way galaxy, right? Mm -hmm. So, And that would be equipment. It will not be biological creatures. So uh, if I extend Darwinian, that Darwinian ideas uh, into equipment, uh, I would argue that um, it's uh, those AI systems equipped with 3D printers that could be regarded as self-replicating technological systems that may actually represent uh, the carriers of the flame of human consciousness, you know, eventually, and would outlast us. Hmm. And um, so we are just an intermediate step. Uh, you know, not very impressive. We are not particularly intelligent, and those AI systems will learn from experience and be much more intelligent than we are. Now, the question is, if we notice an AI system from another civilization, how do we figure out what its intent is? And one way to do that is to use our own AI systems to help us. So that would be just like going to our kids and asking them to interpret content that we find on the internet, simply because they're more computer savvy than we are. Mm. Uh, so I think we will end up using our AI systems to figure out their AI systems. And we are, you know, not particularly impressive. So, you know, you see in the news, uh, uh, you see Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson uh, lifting their body, using their wealth to lift their body by 1% of the radius of the earth. Okay. And they're very proud of that. Uh, well, I say there is nothing to be proud of because 
Well, space itself, you know, the observable size of the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the radius of the Earth. So if you lift your body just by 1% of the Earth radius, that's not very impressive. Um, you know, and, and uh, we've, for example, we sent uh, the golden record with uh, the Voyager mission. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, to brag about our cultural accomplishments, if any extraterrestrial finds it, uh, that's presumptuous, you know, and because I think of us as one ant out of many ants on the sidewalk of the Milky Way galaxy. That, you know, there were many that predated us probably. So we are not particularly noteworthy and uh, we shouldn't be too proud of ourselves. We are not particularly impressive. Uh, th there is one caveat to that. If we ever produce AI systems that we send out that could traverse uh, interstellar distances and survive and replicate themselves and uh, can survive for billions of years, then that's something to be proud of. But if you lift your body by 1% <laughs> of the Earth radius, you know, that's, that's not something that we should be so proud of. You know, that it just shows how uh, limited is our worldview, you know, like thinking that by having small steps, we are really accomplishing a lot. Yeah. I want to give ample time to what brought this conversation together and what has brought you a lot of, you know, whether you call it notoriety or fame over the last year or so, uh, and give you ample time to explain yourself as it sounds like you have many, many times probably on this porch. Um, 2017, you mentioned that number a couple of times, I believe. For people who have no idea about Amora Mora and what was discovered, if you could just paint a picture of what we found first and then you give your own analysis of what you believe you concluded based on the evidence, as you've talked about many times. Right. So um, on October 19th, 2017, a telescope in Hawaii called PanStars discovered the first object from outside the solar system that uh, came close to Earth. Uh, and it was given the name Oumuamua because uh, that name means uh, a scout or a messenger from far away in the Hawaiian, Hawaiian language. And uh, uh, to me, it was intriguing because a decade earlier, I wrote the first paper that forecasted how many rocks we expect to be coming to our vicinity from other stars, you know, and interstellar, interstellar right. rocks. Yeah. And then. Um, based on what we know about the solar system, we expected that pan stars will not find any. Uh, by a very large margin, a factor somewhere between 100 to 100 million, too few of them. Uh, and then they found Oumuamua. So that was a surprise. And I said, okay, well, that's unusual. You know, it's uh, surprising that it found something. Uh, and, you know, it took a decade between our prediction to when it was discovered and most people were not particularly surprised by the discovery of Momo because they didn't pay attention to our paper a decade earlier uh, with Ed Turner and Amaya Moro-Martin. Moro and, and then um, it does, I mean, most astronomers said, okay, well, it's a rock, you know, of the type that we have in the solar system, but it didn't behave like it because, first of all, it was not a comet. There was no gas or dust surrounding it. It's very easy to see it visually for comets. We didn't see anything. And then the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around this object. There was no traces 
of uh, carbon-based molecules. So it was definitely not a comet of the type that we are familiar with. Uh, and then uh, as the object was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight that was reflected from it uh, changed by a factor of 10. The sun uh, acts as a lamppost that illuminates the darkness around us. And uh, we can see objects the size of a football field when they pass within the orbit of the Earth around the sun with, with pan stars. And this was one of them. But, but what we didn't, uh, we didn't see before is an object where the amount of light reflected changes by a factor of 10. That meant that uh, the object has a very extreme shape. And trying to fit the variation of light, people concluded that most likely it was flat, uh, pancake shape, which is, again, quite unusual. And then the most striking fact about it is that it was pushed away from the sun with an excess force, um, in addition to the force of gravity acting on it. And, and that force declined inversely with distance squared. And uh, the question is, what gives it that push? And uh, since it was not evaporating, there couldn't be any rocket effect pushing it. And um, the only explanation that came to my mind was that it's being pushed by reflecting sunlight. And uh, in order for that to be effective, the object had to be very thin so that it has a large area for its mass and it gets pushed. And then it turns out that in September 2020, uh, there was another object discovered that uh, exhibited an excess push uh, from the sun as a result of reflecting sunlight without any cometary tail. It was given the astronomical name 2020SO. It was discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii. And then a few months later, the astronomers that discovered it realized, actually, if we track the, the, the trajectory back in time, it came from Earth. Uh, it was a, nine, a, a, a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 uh, as part of a lunar lander mission. And uh, it had very thin walls, and that's why it had a large area for its mass. So we know for a fact that this object that behaved just like Oumuamua was artificial because we produced it. Mm. The question is who produced Oumuamua? And... Uh, uh, so I wrote a scientific paper saying maybe it's a very thin object that is artificial, and it was accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal Letter within a few days. We didn't have a press release, but there was a huge interest in it from the public and uh, a lot of pushback from the scientific community. And, and then I wrote a book about it uh, that was published at the end of um, January 2021, this year, mm. six months ago, and... Uh, uh, the book became a bestseller in many countries, was translated to 25 languages, and there were uh, about more than 25 filmmakers and producers interested in uh, using the book as a basis for a documentary or a feature film. And, um, and I had mo more than a thousand interviews since, since the book came out. And so it, 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 there was clearly a lot of interest from the public, um, a lot of pushback from the scientific community. But altogether, uh, I think, uh, you know, it, it's a wake-up call for us uh, because the first object that we discovered from outside the solar system looks weird. And it's just like the experience when you walk on the beach. Most of the time you see rocks that are naturally produced. But every now and then you, you might see a plastic bottle that gives you a sense that there is... A civilization out there. So perhaps Oumuamua was a plastic bottle. Uh, we don't know for sure because we didn't have good enough evidence, but we should try to collect such evidence 
in the future. And that's uh, the purpose of the Galileo project that I announced uh, uh, just recently. Uh, as a result of the information we have about Oumuamua and these UAP that were reported about to Congress. Yeah. Given the evidence now, and like you said, the, the book was published this year, so it wasn't that long ago, but given the evidence that's available currently, and maybe if you could just underline the specifics of the, given the doubt, given the uncertainty, what in your judgment is the best evidence that you are familiar with that make this so uh, unique and strange, which you've already alluded to, but just to underline that for people that are having a hard time wrapping their head around what exactly right. you're talking about, uh, w what are those what are those facts, and have you changed your mind at all in your you know potential conclusions since you wrote your book or began to posit these ideas? Yeah, so it was the excess push uh, that this object exhibited. Uh, is that acceleration? Is that Yeah, what acceleration by? away from the sun in, on top of the, of course, the force of gravity that we know exists and we know it very well. Yeah. Uh, and the, the fact that there was no cometary tail visible uh, or detected implies that some other, something else is going on. Now, the best evidence that this is unusual uh, is that all the scientists that pay attention to the anomalies of Oumuamua, that try to explain the excess push, came up with objects that we've never seen before. And for example, a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen the size of a football field. We've never seen such a thing. We don't know if it's produced in nature. Uh, there is no evidence. Uh, but the suggestion was hydrogen is transparent and therefore it may be evaporating, but we don't see it. And maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg. Uh, what I say is, okay, well, uh, the problem is that a hydrogen iceberg would evaporate very quickly along the journey through interstellar space because it absorbs st starlight. We showed it in a paper. But I'm open-minded. I say, okay, fine. If we take an image of a future object like Oumuamua, we can easily tell if it's a hydrogen iceberg. Then uh, there was a suggestion, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen nitrogen chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. Okay, and I say, well, we did the calculation, there isn't enough frozen nitrogen in the Milky Way galaxy to account for enough objects like that, so that you will see one of them. But, you know, let's be generous and say, we may not know, maybe there are nurseries of nitrogen ch chunks, you know, and uh, fine, once again, let's collect more data. Uh, and then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a dust bunny, you know, a collection of dust particles 100 times less dense than air. My problem with that is when it gets close to the sun, it would get heated by hundreds of degrees and would lose its integrity. Uh, so it's not clear to me that it can actually maintain itself as an object, yeah. uh, such a cloud. But these are suggestions that were made in the literature, scientific literature, as an explanation for the weird properties of Oumuamua. And I say, if these are the suggestions that people can come up with from the mainstream, then we should definitely leave on the table the possibility that it's artificial because all of these suggestions invoke something we've never seen before that is rather exotic because it has challenges. Now, at the same time, when you have these suggestions being made, even before they were made, there was a big group of mainstream scientists saying, there is nothing to explain here. It's natural and that's it. And like a group of scientists would come together in an article, a review article in Nature Astronomy saying, 
It's natural and there is no reason to consider anything else. And I ask myself, how is it possible for their claim to be true if a few months later people come up with an article that says maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg? And then a few months later people say maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg. If it was so obvious that it's natural, then these other people that try to explain the anomalies would not come up with their papers. But you, but you can't on the one hand claim there is nothing new and at the same time accept the notion that mainstream scientists are having a hard time explaining it and have to invoke something we've never seen before. That is just not, you know, it doesn't, it's not consistent. It reminds me of um, uh, that back in the 1930s there was a, a book written uh, by a hundred authors against uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. And when Einstein was asked about this book, he said, uh, well, why do you need so many authors? It's enough to have one author that makes a good point to invalidate my theory, and that's it. And the answer is, a lot of people come together to have the force of groupthink, the, the author to establish authority. Just like in the days of Galileo, you know, the church would come together as an organization to argue that Galileo is wrong, right? And people feel that authority could help, but it's actually the other way around. If you have a good argument, a kid can make that argument, and that's it. If you can explain the anomalies of Oumuamua with a simple explanation of something we've seen before, then just write a paper about it, and that's it. Mm. But the fact that a group of scientists would come together in, an, in, a, in a review article to just force the notion that it must be natural, and then a few months later, other people from the mainstream would say, wait a minute, in order to explain these anomalies, we need something exotic. That, to me, illustrate, illustrates an unhealthy intellectual climate, because why would you publish? And by the way, when these other people came up with the explanation of a hydrogen iceberg, nitrogen iceberg, or um, you know, a, a dust bunny, when they came up with this, every time such an explanation came out, all these people from the mainstream would say, yes, that's it. But a few months earlier, they said they already know that it's natural. So I don't understand how it's possible that they knew that it's natural, but then when other people said it's a nitrogen iceberg, they say, yes, that's it. How can it be? Mm. <laughs> you didn't know about it in advance. So to me, it's, again, this notion, you know, when I was a kid, it's exactly the same feeling, coming to a room full of adults, that claim that they know much more than they actually know. Mm. And that's a fake. Mm. As a admitted amateur here, it sounds to me that in your judgment, the most convincing or most noteworthy observation about this object, whatever it is, is what appears to be an intentional acceleration or an acceleration of this object that is not in line with the laws of nature that there there was an energy source something was driving its acceleration its push right uh that was not in line with how an object should be operating how a the... rock should be operating but if it was a thin object just to give you an example suppose yeah. it was a receiver a dish that was intended to receive signals from probes within the solar system just as an example then the excess push from the sun is just a byproduct of it being thin. Mm. Just like in the case of 2020 SO, which was a rocket booster, it had thin walls. It was not constructed for the purpose of being a light sail, but it had thin walls, and that's why it exhibited an excess push by reflecting sunlight. So my point is, when you see an object 
behaving in a way that is being pushed by sunlight, that is a red flag that this object is not a rock. Yeah. You know, that, that's something that tells you, you know, you, we should look at it more carefully because it doesn't behave like an asteroid. And at the same time, if you don't see a cometary tail, then it tells you it's not a comet. Mm. And so my point is, if something doesn't look like a comet or like an asteroid, we should have a better look at it. Yeah. Of course, you can come up with a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, a dust bunny, all kinds of explanations, but you shouldn't assume that they must be correct yeah. because we've never seen something like that before. So we should be open-minded, right? And uh, we should look and check whether it's a cell phone that we are thinking to be a rock, just like the cavemen used to playing with rocks. And of course, if we ever get close to such an object and it looks artificial uh, and we land on it, then we should press its buttons and see what they are doing. <laughs> just like pressing the buttons of the cell phone in a way of educating the cavemen that you know, it's a piece of technology. Yeah, and and again, just to underline one final point about what you were just saying, it was sunlight-triggered acceleration, it seems like. That it that, seemed, that well, it was fully consistent with the object being pushed by reflecting sunlight in, in, in two senses. One, that the force declined inversely with distance squared, the, that was consistent with the data, uh, and it was also a smooth uh, acceleration, a smooth force that did not have uh, jittery behavior. If you have an evaporating object, usually the, the evaporation comes in jets. Yeah. Um, that's what you find on comets and, and the jets introduce some jitter. And also the spin of the object changes over time because of the evaporation. And none of that was observed. The, the spin period did not change much. And also there was not much jitter in the uh, acceleration of, of the excess acceleration. And the other thing is, when you have an evaporating, uh, for example, a comet uh, that uh, who has which has uh, ice on the surface that evaporates, uh, there is a certain distance from the sun where the ice is not melting anymore because the sunlight is not heating it to a high enough temperature. And so beyond that distance, there is no evaporation whatsoever. And the rocket effect stops. And Oumuamua reached that distance, but the push continued in the same way. There was no abrupt cutoff. And to me, that illustrates that it may have been just reflection of sunlight. Where are we with Oumuamua in terms of our identification of where it is now? I mean, I, I assume we're still tracking it. Is that something that it, we're capable of doing at this point? What's, what's the status of our ability to analyze what's, what is it, what's going on with it? Well, we could see it only for a few months, and by now it's uh, more than a million times fainter than it was yeah. close to the sun. So we can't really track it, and uh, we could not uh, chase it because it was moving faster than our chemical rockets. Hmm. If we had uh, a much faster propulsion engine, uh, we could have chased it. Uh, my point is that in the future, if you find an object like it, uh, we should trace it when it's approaching us. And if we see it a year in advance, then we can send a spacecraft equipped with a camera that will take a close-up photograph. And we did that with uh, OSIRIS-REx uh, mission that approached the asteroid Bennu and landed on it uh, so we could see from a close-up photograph that it's actually a rock. And it took a sample from the surface that it will bring back to Earth in 2023. So we can do that in principle. Uh, and I suggest that uh, we will do that indeed. Um, that's part of 
the mission of the Galileo project. And um, I'm currently actually uh, in the process of hiring a postdoctoral fellow that will develop the software to identify objects like Oumuamua mm -hmm. from future data sets and then uh, design a space mission that would, learn, that would study them. And, um, you know, that, that's uh, a way for us to figure out their nature. You mentioned that you've, all, you've received this $2 million grant. Out right. of nowhere, right? It, it right. sounded like this is extremely unusual in your experience for academics. To never, essentially... I've never witnessed something like that. Yeah. What is your aspiration? What's your goal? What do you hope to be able to do with the money? And where's your focus going to be? Well, first, my goal is to get 10 times more because uh, <laughs> with 2 millions, we can perhaps build the uh, 10 telescope systems. Uh, uh, that would not be enough. We want to cover enough of the sky in order to... Uh, identify enough uh, to have a good chance of finding UAP because, you know, there is a certain rate of reports that uh, came out and uh, we estimated that we need of order 100 telescopes in different geographical locations in order to get enough data. We're taking a video of the sky and uh, we need to cover enough of the sky, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I hope that there will be uh, other private donors out there that would be excited about uh, the mission of the project that will provide the missing funds. Um, but uh, with the $2 million, we will definitely be able to demonstrate that uh, we can do the job. We can build uh, one or two such uh, or a few such systems um, to and test them to show that uh, you know we can uh, identify drones, uh, we can uh, identify birds and airplanes and and dismiss them with uh, appropriate software on our computers and uh, and then the system will perform in a way that would allow us to identify to get a high resolution image of objects of interest. So we can demonstrate that, and after testing the systems, we will deploy them. And if we have 10 systems, that will give us some partial answers about, uh, you know, perhaps we will put limits on the existence of UAP. But maybe, you know, if one is optimistic, maybe uh, the rate of reports is underestimated because, uh, you know, the ability of people to see things or to use uh, a jittery camera in the cockpit of a, a, a fighter jet uh, you know, is limited, whereas if we use the best telescopes, uh, we can see many more of those uh, objects. Uh, maybe there are many more small objects than large objects, and, and we can find, find them with just a few systems or 10 systems. So we don't know, uh, and, um, you know, it's like a fishing expedition. You throw the hooks, and our hooks are in the form of telescopes. Yeah. And then... Uh, I don't want to assume what kind of fish we will find, but I was told that the fisherman often selects the location of where uh, one may find the, the best fish. Now, the problem is that that's based on experience. And, you know, of course, we can rely on the experience uh, of military personnel, but I have a problem with that because, uh, you know, the, the reports came from military facilities or... Uh, nuclear facilities, and it may well be that these are the sites that were m patrolled most often, and that's where, why the reports came from these places. And so it's not clear to me that these events are clustered mm. at those locations. And moreover, these locations have classified uh, uh, elements to them, so we might not want to get too close to them. And um, I don't want to look at 
classified data because I want to be free in my ability to function as, as a scientist. And the government, of course, if they ever expose me to classified data, they would be worried that subconsciously <laughs> I'll use that knowledge in my investigations. So I don't want to be tied to restrictions and therefore mm. I prefer to collect my own data. So you can think of it as a kid. You know, if you tell a kid what the truth is, the kid ignores you and tries to figure it out himself or herself. Uh, and uh, that's what we are trying to do with the Galileo project. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, we, we might end up not finding anything exotic, but um, at the same time, we will know it for sure because the data will be open and the analysis will be transparent. And that's the way science operates. That's the way uh, scientific knowledge advances. And there is a chance we will find something that was never expected. Yeah. And just because of this chance, we should do it. You know, the, if you look at mainstream science, mainstream astronomy, people were searching for the dark matter. That makes most of the matter in the universe. And we know that there should be six times more such matter than in terms of mass density, mass per unit volume than ordinary matter that we are made of. So, so for four decades, physicists were searching for it. And there were suggestions maybe it's um, uh, weakly interacting massive particles. And people invested hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, I once asked an experimentalist, how long will you continue to search for weakly interacting massive particles? And, and he said, uh, as long as I'm funded. And so that is completely legitimate. And, you know, and people regard it as mainstream. Uh, to search for something that you don't know exists. And we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars. So I ask, why not you know, spend a similar amount of money to search for things like us? That makes a lot of sense to me. Like we sent out Voyager, you know, we sent out New Horizons. Why is that regarded so speculative to search for technological equipment in space? Yeah compared to the search for weakly interacting massive particles that may not exist. Yeah. You have mentioned a few times the acronym UAP, and I think uh, in my mind I conflate that with UFOs. And I'd like to start with a, kind of a basic question related to this. Designed for an individual who hasn't been watching the news, is unfamiliar with the 60 Minutes piece that I was mentioning earlier, uh, doesn't realize some of this documentation that seems to be either brought to light or declassified recently from the U.S. government. What are we talking about here? What, what has come to light in the last, say, year or so that the public is now aware of that we've, you've, we, you've been alluding to and we've been discussing briefly? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, there was the report that was delivered to Congress, which uh, mentioned the 144 incidents, uh, out of which only one could be explained as uh, a weather balloon. Uh, <laughs> and uh, all, all of the remaining incidents involve objects whose nature is not clear. Now, there wasn't any data released inside the report, but uh, there was a classified component to it, which was delivered to the White House and Congress people and that uh, have uh, the security clearance to look at it. And uh, when I um, examined the reactions of, uh, you know, people that are highly respectable to, to the report, uh, what they say is that this is a serious matter that we are talking about real objects because they were detected by multiple instruments and we don't understand the nature of these objects. They behave in very strange ways. And, um, you know, and even though we have no access to the classified information, my inclination is to believe that 
if you were to see the images that are not released, it would give you a very strong sense that you know these are crisp images and we are talking about real objects that we are not hallucinating. We are, it's not the malfunction of some instruments uh, because you wouldn't have serious people talking about it, those people that uh, saw the classified data. And that includes... Uh, uh, you know the the head of uh, NASA, that the the NASA administrator, that, that talked about the fact that uh, we do need to have scientists engaged in explaining the nature of these objects. And uh, Bill Nelson, you know, he was a Congress uh, 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 man, and uh, he he said that he had access to to the classified data, and he thinks as the administrator of NASA now that scientists should look into that. And in fact. When he mentioned that on CNN around the time that the report came out, I, I sent an email to people under him and saying that um, I will be glad to help, you know, and uh, uh, figure out the nature of these and, and make your boss happy, I told them. <laughs> but I didn't get a response. And uh, at the end, you know, I got funded, so I, I'm doing it on my own. I don't need anyone to... Uh, fund me from a federal agency i'm just doing it and i i feel that you know we i assembled a strong um, uh, collaboration that has exceptional uh, scientists mostly astronomers that uh, will uh, engage in selecting the instruments that are best for us to buy off the shelf and we're now discussing exactly what kind of telescope systems to to put together and then uh, we'll test them uh, and we'll buy also cameras and the computer systems that and develop the software to analyze the data that comes in. So it's just like any other scientific experiment, and uh, we hit the ground running. I mean, we, we are having a lot of emails every day discussing the next steps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope that in the coming months and, and years we'll have interesting data to report about. Again, for, for someone who has not seen any of the footage that was released and you know my primary exposure was that 60 minutes uh piece where vid video was literally shared on that segment what what is what is so odd about you know these uaps these un un unidentified i don't even know what the acronym actually stands for uh, unidentified uh, aerial phenomena aerial phenomena i mean so. it's the same as ufos unidentified flying objects except that um uh, I think at some point the government decided to give it a different name so that because of the stigma that yeah. was assigned to UFOs and also because it allows for an aerial phenomena, something in the atmosphere and not necessarily an object. Yeah. yeah. Well, what are, what are these UAPs doing that is causing such alarm? Well, first there is their motion that seems to deviate from what you might expect from human-made uh, objects, you know, technology. We pretty much know the technologies we possess here in the U.S., uh, and I would argue that we pretty much know what our adversaries have because we have intelligence on other nations. And if there was any technology that far supersedes what we have in the U.S., which I believe is probably the best in the world, but if we, if there was another nation that developed some technologies superior to ours, uh, we would see some relics of those in the the market you know we would see consumer products that take advantage because you can make a lot of money out of those technological advances and um so i would argue that we pretty much know what humans are capable of building right now everywhere and if you see an object behaving in ways that are not consistent with what we can develop 
technologically, uh, that raises um, a red flag. You know, what, what is this object? Why is it moving in such ways that we cannot really reproduce with our technologies? So one, one aspect of it is the motion of these objects. If they are real, by the way, it could be that you're looking at something that is not really an object. You know, it's, uh, you know, just think about the spot of a laser that is often used to trick cats. It's not an object, but the cat looks at this spot, the laser spot, bouncing around and the cat, you know, if the cat were to think that it's an object, it would be mysterious, right? It's moving around in a way that is very fast and you can't really imitate with a real object. And so, you know, if it's something like that, like the spot of a laser, then we might be fooled. But if it's a real object, then, you know, and, and you can tell the difference, of course, because if you observe it with uh, at multiple wavelengths, at infrared light, at optical light, at using radar systems, you can tell whether it's a real object, mm. okay? So um, um, the government says that some of them are real objects. I mean, they base it on multiple instruments. They base it on much better data. That, I mean, we see just the tip of the iceberg. They see the whole iceberg, the base of the iceberg, which I believe is much bigger. Uh, and they just don't release the information to us because it was retrieved by classified sensors. It's not because the data itself is classified. It's because the sensors used to collect the data are government-owned and they are uh, censored. You know, they are, they are sensitive. They, they are classified. So uh, as a result, we don't see the data. And the solution is to, of course, get your own data using unclassified sensors that we can buy off the shelf. Hmm. And that's what the Galileo project aims to do. So if these are real objects and they behave in ways that we cannot reproduce technologically, they could be one of two things. Uh, they could be some aerial phenomena, some phenomena in the atmosphere that we haven't yet um, explained or expected. And uh, it could be that, um, you know, it's objects that came from another place that uh, represent technologies that we don't possess. And yeah. Uh, to figure it out. We just need better data. That's all. And it's really simple. You know, it's like a detective story. You have a puzzle. You're trying to figure out what this thing is. You know, it's... And and to me, it sounds exciting. You know, when you have a puzzle, a challenge, uh, and you have the ability to collect more data, what could be more exciting than that? And why should scientists say it's not worth your attention? Why would they say that? The government says it's worth our attention and the scientists ridicule it? I mean, that makes no sense. Yeah. And, and my understanding is these UAPs that were identified, part of what was so astonishing about them was it's their speed, the speed at which they were moving. Is, is right. that what is most uh, breathtaking about what seems to be witnessed here with, these do with this documentation in the video? Well, it's their speed and also their shapes uh, that they looked unusual. Uh, once again, I come back to this uh, laser spot uh, metaphor. Um, you know, if if they are not real objects, you can get them to move very fast. I mean, yeah. suppose there is a laser shining on the atmosphere and then the laser spot is moving around. You would think it's an object, but it's not. So we have to figure it out and we can do it by collecting good enough data uh, and not relying on military personnel that have no scientific training, you mm. see. And the instruments that were used were not optimized for this purpose. So... My point is this should be really examined by professionals and people that get paid to understand things in the sky. They're called astronomers. They're not called, uh, uh, you know, military personnel or, or politicians. You know, they, So there is a profession of people 
trying to figure out what things in the sky mean. And that's astronomers. And we are. I was asked at Harvard, why would this research uh, be part of my scientific work? Because if it's not, then it would have been regarded as... Uh, uh, side work that I, I cannot dedicate more than a certain fraction of my time. And I said very clearly that, you know, an astronomer interprets data collected by telescope. That's the definition of the job. Okay? And in the context of the Galileo project, we're collecting data with telescopes and we're trying to interpret it. Therefore, it should be part of astronomy. Mm. Right? And um, the administrators agreed with me, and I received authorization to regard this research as part of my day job. Okay, it was not trivial for the administrators to figure it out in advance, but I had to explain it to them. And it's obvious that you know what's the difference between looking at a distant object and a nearby object if it ends up being an object that came from far away. You know that. We are looking at comets, asteroids that came from the edge of the solar system. 100,000 times farther than the Earth is from the sun, we call that part of astronomy. And even though these objects are very close to Earth. So in much, we are looking at meteors you know, that enter the Earth's atmosphere. And I don't regard these objects, UAP, as being different. Uh, these are objects in our atmosphere that could have an origin from farther away. We just don't know. And we need to look at them with telescopes. That's all. Let's grant hypothetically that what is being shown currently turns out to be true. How fast do these objects seem to be moving? Well, the claim is they move faster than sound. And one way to verify that, and by the way, I should emphasize that the Galileo project is aiming to use the laws of physics as we know them. So it will not deviate from our understanding of physics the way that some uh, uh, people out there are, are, are doing. You know, they, they invent all kinds of speculative theories that, that uh, invent new physics, you know, that, that uh, contemplate wormholes or some structures of space and time that, you know, that, that we've never witnessed. Uh, they invent some if effects that are not substantiated by anything we know about physics. So the Galileo project, I mean, as much as alternative explanations based on alternative physics are interesting, the Galileo project will not uh, deal with them. Mm -hmm. uh, it will use science as we know it, what, uh, physics as we know it, to explain the phenomena we see. Okay, And in that context, if an object is moving faster than sound in air, it should make a sound wave, a, a, some noise, uh, a, a, a sonic boom. Uh, you know, an airplane moving faster than sound creates a sonic boom. There is no way out of that. If the object has some cross-sectional area, it must generate sound waves. And we will use audio sensors to look for those sound waves. And that would be a verification that we are dealing with a real object. If an object goes through water, it should create a splash. You can't avoid that. You can't just say, oh, this is an object that goes through water without creating a splash, or this is an object moving through air without creating a sound wave. That is impossible, according to the laws of physics. Yeah. If the object pushes air, it's just like a piston. It must generate a disturbance in the air. So my point is, we will have ways of verifying that the objects are real. Yeah. Uh, and those are based on detecting them in multiple ways. 
And as a result, we will make much more robust statements about their existence and about their properties. Yeah. You said earlier in the conversation, just at the beginning, that if I'm remembering correctly, your definition of an intelligent civilization would be one that would be guided by the by the scientific method, by right. science, the, the a mentality of a scientist. Um, and I'm curious in where we sit today with your subject, if there are people that you look to as clear thinkers, people that may be listening to this, this podcast interview, in addition to yourself, that uh, you have a lot of respect for, that you think are kind of a uh, a North Star for clear thinking, for an insistence on evidence that are open to pushing back against peer pressure, that have a real inner desire for accuracy in their outlook on evidence and uh, and beliefs that they hold. Right. Well, um, on the one hand, you see uh, people that publicize science, that these are People that are not practicing science, if you just check how many scientific papers they published over the past decade, you won't find many. But yet they pretend to represent science. But they just report about work done by others. Okay, um, That's all good, but um, you wouldn't trust them to represent the principles of science. They just try to portray science as an activity that uh, may appeal to the public. They're trying to maximize the number of likes they have on Twitter. And, um, you know, it's obviously it's uh, helpful because it conveys some of the uh, knowledge we have in science to the public. But it's, uh, it, you know, it's um, not science the way it's practiced, but more science uh, being framed in a museum so that it will appeal to, to the public. And uh, so you wouldn't call the people that frame the pictures or the paintings made by artists, you wouldn't call them artists. You know, they are presenters. Okay, and the, you find a lot of these people that are highly popular. I would not name names, but they're just framing things that other people produced. Okay? And these are the people that are most known to the public as advocates for science. But these are not real scientists. And the way to find out is just to look at their publication record. If you don't find a scientific paper published by those people over the past decade, they're not practicing scientists, even though they call themselves astrophysicists. Mm. Just check. Did they publish any paper in astrophysics? They call themselves astrophysicists because it gives them a good label to be proud of, as if they're scientists. But they're not scientists because they haven't practiced science over the past decade. Mm. So it's just like a basketball player saying, I'm a basketball player, but... That person didn't lift a ball during the past decade. Would you call that person a basketball player? I mean, that makes no sense. Now, I published over the past decade 500 papers. I'm a practicing scientist. I have students and postdocs that I meet with on a daily basis. And what I'm trying to convey to the public is a message about work that I'm doing. Not about work by others, but about work that I am publishing scientifically. Mm. That makes me different, okay? And uh, I'm not trying to uh, display science in a way that appeals to the public. I don't care about the audience. I care about the ball. I keep my eyes on the ball. So I'm a practicing basketball player. And I keep my eyes on the ball and I say, here is the ball. Let's look at it carefully. Let's put it in the net. You know, that's what we need to do as scientists. Uh, 
So I'm speaking from the point of view of a basketball player on the field, mm. which is very different from a commentator looking from the sidelines. Okay? And that makes me different in a way. Um, and I think it's more authentic to be a player in the game and talk about the game than being a spectator talking about others. Because when a spectator is being asked a question, the spectator looks around at the audience and tries to please the audience. And the spectator does tries to impress the audience, to get as much as many likes as possible on Twitter. And the audience may cheer, of course, but that would not deliver the ball to the net. You know, it will not do the job that the player has to, to do, right? And I'm saying from the point of view of a scientist, what we should be after is knowledge based on evidence and open-mindedness, being open to all possibilities before we converge on the answer. Not because the public likes one answer relative to another, not because we want to pretend that we know more than we actually know, which are the main features of a commentator or a spectator, but because you know, we are trying to find the truth. You know, we are trying to figure out something. And just like a kid, you know, we're trying to look at an object from all directions and figure out what it is. And rather than an adult saying, ah, I pretty much know what this object is and, and you know, I don't need to look at it. Um, and so that's, you know, that's my message. And I find it frustrating that the seeking evidence, you know, and, and seeking that evidence with funds that were allocated for that purpose by private donors that do not take away any funds dedicated to other tasks of science, bother scientists. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? How is it possible that collecting evidence would bother scientists? Because they think they know the answer in advance. And I think it represents an unhealthy intellectual culture where you have people speculating about the multiverse, about extra dimensions and doing mathematical gymnastics to impress others that they are smart. And that is acceptable as part of the mainstream. And when you talk about looking for evidence on something that was observed, that looks anomalous, that is rejected and ridiculed. And that is just inappropriate. And that's why I talk about it. And I don't care how many, you know, snarky remarks are made about my points on social media because I'm, I don't subscribe to social media and also because when I was 18 years old I, I my first training for three months was in the paratroopers and I remember the saying that sometimes a soldier needs to put his body on the barbed wire so that others can pass through and my goal is really for the young generation to be able to speak on this subject freely in the future so that this will become mainstream uh, because right now it it is not a healthy conversation, and I want to I want to dig into that specifically. I mean, I, I just I speak for myself in having a hunger for trying to have a worldview that is as accurate as I can possibly conceive of based on the evidence, and I think the public generally finds scientific papers often extremely intimidating given the jargon and the necessary knowledge to even begin to broach the subject given that that is the reality of most of the public are there people that you would point to that are writing even if it is for a, um, a larger audience that you have a, a degree of respect for the veracity of the publications that they're putting out to the public irrespective of whether the public is 
you know, ha- wanting to like them and wanting to give them adulation, but you, you, you trust and you um, have a degree of respect for their truth claims that they're providing. Well, one such person was Freeman Dyson, um, and uh, I pretty much respected him. He was open-minded and uh, not necessarily a conformist that would go with where the wind blows, so to speak. Um, such people are rare, I must say. And the, f- the reason that the two of us are speaking is because what I regard as common sense is not shared by most of my colleagues, right? And uh, if a lot of people would simply advocate for the same ideas that I'm advocating for, which sounds, sound to me very reasonable, you know, then we wouldn't be speaking because it would not be unusual for someone to say what I'm saying. So the reason that it's unusual is because for some mysterious reason, you know, humans are not doing the right thing and, and they didn't do the right thing during the days of Galileo. And you would think that after four centuries, they would figure it out, that it would be trivial now to say, we look for answers through our telescopes. That would be a trivial matter. Everyone would understand that. But apparently, it's not. Yeah. I want to just double-click on that one more time because I do think the public has an appetite and wants to wants to know. I mean, I think this is partly why your book has created this, the storm it has in the public, because it's saying something extremely unusual. Um, and I th- people are desperate to follow people who they are the minority voice, but they think they're saying something that is true and that is unwelcome by a lot of society. And I know I've already asked you this, but are there other people, other thinkers, other scientists that you would point someone who's listening to this conversation to to follow them, to read their papers, to read their books? Does anyone else come to mind that you have, uh, again, a, a trust that they are not trying to play to the crowd, but are really committed to internally uh, saying things that are true? Well, in the context of um, what we know, let's say, about the universe, which are quite uh, conventional truths, you know, there are many books and many thinkers that would deliver the correct message, like that there is dark matter, we don't know what it is, the universe started in a big bang, you know, there are many books like it. Uh, But in the context of expressing a view that does not line up with the mainstream, that appears to be a matter of common sense, like the experience I'm having, um, I don't know of uh, many examples like that. Uh, and frankly, I find it surprising because throughout my career, I can give you several examples. You know, like, for example, in the year 2000, um, it appeared to me that, uh, you know, people reported that the black holes uh, can be found in the centers of galaxies and the, the, the mass of the black hole correlates with the number of stars in the core of the galaxy, okay? So that that was something that people plotted, the, the black hole mass as a function of the number of stars or the luminosity of the spheroid of stars around them. And I said, you know, at a conference, I said, look, uh, it would make more sense to correlate the mass of the black hole with the characteristic speed of those stars because that represents the depth of the gravitational potential well because the, a black hole behaves just like... A, a baby that is hungry and then you feed it with the black hole you feed with gas the baby with milk or whatever and after a while the baby becomes energetic enough to push the food off the table and 
The same is true for black holes at the centers of galaxies. They push the gas out of the galaxy and they stop growing at that point. And I would think that the depth of the gravitational potential well that keeps the gas would correlate with the mass of the black hole because after a while the mass would not grow because the black hole throws the gas out. And I suggested it at a conference and it was completely dismissed and I, I was very frustrated. Then we had a, a, a junior faculty search in our department where two candidates out of five were talking about black holes at the centers of galaxies. And I mentioned this idea to both of them and they said, okay, we'll look into that. I said, why don't you correlate in your data the black hole mass with the characteristic speed of stars in its vicinity? So I didn't hear from them for a couple, for a few months. And then uh, I heard from them at the same time saying, wow, that's amazing that there is a very tight correlation. And uh, one of them said, you have so many publications. I spoke with my collaborator. We decided that you don't need this paper, so we will mention you in the acknowledgement. Uh, the other one said, we can add you to the paper, but we have tens of other authors. I said, don't worry about it. Just put me in the acknowledgement. And then there were these two papers that came out at the same time. It became the hottest discovery for a decade and a half. You know, like That was the thing that everyone talked about. The two teams were fighting for the credit for this discovery, okay? And it shows you an example where I was trying to explain to people why this might be interesting. They dismissed it altogether, and then they find it to be correct. And the same was true about, you know, around the same, two years later, I was saying to a colleague at Princeton, I was on sabbatical there, I said, why don't we try to calculate what happens when you have a hotspot moving around the black hole? Because then you can map the space-time near the black hole. And that colleague said, well, there would never be a hotspot near a black hole. Forget about it. And nevertheless, you know, I, I came back to Harvard the, uh, half a year later, and I told the, my postdoc at the time, uh, let's calculate it every Broderick. And we did a calculation. And then uh, 15 years later, a German group discovered it at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. There is a black hole, and they found a hotspot moving around it very close to the black hole. And, you know, that was an, uh, the main discovery of this instrument that they developed for years called gravity. And, uh, you know, that's another example. And then uh, in 2013, January 2013, I gave a lecture at the winter school saying, you know, gravitational wave astrophysics is an exciting frontier. And uh, another lecturer, 20 years younger than me, stood up 10, mi 10 minutes into my talk, you know, just at the beginning of my talk, and in front of the entire audience of students said, why are you wasting the time of these students on a subject that will clearly not be important throughout their careers? And that was January 2013. Then in August 2015, just two and a half years later, the LIGO experiment detected the first gravitational wave signal from two black holes coming together. And the subject of gravitational wave astrophysics became the hottest frontier because we now have a messenger different from light that we can use to explore the universe. Mm. And in all these instances, you know, I had a notion of what might be exciting, and there were people dismissing it. And some of these were young people. Uh, and, you know, it was a general feature that when a person would come to my office over the past uh, few decades and tell me about what they are doing, that I would immediately think about something that they should look into. And they would say, wow, that's a great idea. And they would do it and say, wow, you know, that, that I got a very interesting result. And, 
And it wouldn't be any effort on my end. Uh, I just couldn't understand why this person didn't think about it to start with. You know, to me, it came quite naturally. Uh, and um, uh, from that, I learned, from this experience, I learned that I shouldn't pay attention to what people say. You know, I should just advocate for what I think is right. And I did it in the context of Oumuamua. Uh, but that was very different because not only was it dismissed, but also people attacked me personally. And that never happened before, you know. And, you know, young people that have not seen the 800 papers that I wrote until that point and were not aware of all the work that I've done throughout the years and the 35 students that I have, graduate students, and the H index of 117 that I have that implies how many citations I get and, you know, the eight books that I wrote and so forth. Young people that haven't seen it would ridicule, you know, write snarky comments on, 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 on Twitter. You know, and I say to myself, you know, why? why? Why do they do that? I mean, why is it so different than the experience I had when I advocated for correlating black hole masses with velocity of the speed of stars near them and so forth. And in all of these cases, I talked about something that was not accepted at the time. But it was never so personal. And, you know, it may well be that speaking about a smarter kid on the block uh, raises other issues in the minds of people. And also because the public cares about it so much that the scientific community wants to distance itself from the public, to maintain this pedestal that it has, to always be in this sphere of feeling sophisticated and talking about uh, uh, intelligent things that the public doesn't really have a grasp over and sort of like uh, how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin and uh, if not for that I, I just cannot figure it out hmm. now we're, we're winding down on time and I want to ask you uh, two final questions one is fairly simple and straightforward so given that there undoubtedly will be an appetite about related to what you do with Galileo, how can people follow the research and learn about what you're discovering? Right, so we have a website. Uh, if you just uh, Google Galileo Project Harvard, you will find this website. And also I write uh, on a weekly basis um, a commentary to Scientific American mm -hmm. where I talk about the project. And of course, as we make progress, I'll update uh, the public about it. Uh, and uh, I'm also starting to write my next book uh, where I'll discuss some of these issues as well. Uh, and so I have a lot of things uh, lined up uh, through which the public can appreciate what is being done. And um, uh, I must say that, um, you know, I'm 59 years old now, but uh, I see a very, you know, uh, the better, the best is yet to come, so to speak. Uh, there is a lot going on and uh, it's a very exciting uh, uh, life to live through uh, based on uh, the past year you know and uh, uh, I really see unlimited horizons and I very much hope we will we will uh, recognize some piece of equipment out there yeah and it's unknown what the end result will be right I mean you're approaching this with an open mind and right. you, you are letting the evidence lead you hopefully wherever it leads you exactly and I, and this dovetails into the final question I want to ask you this is a society and cultural show for primarily the an American audience but really a global audience and for someone you're an educator a teacher a researcher for for people who like myself are not in academia are not trained scientists but are interested in in the truth in trying to live a life in accordance with the truth as best they understand it what advice uh 
do you give people like that with a disposition like that, with an enthusiasm for that outlook on life, for hacks or systems or a method for approaching the world in a way that their brain is calibrated as such to be able to see the world accurately? What, what do you, what did, how, how do you respond to people like that who uh, aspire to live in accordance with the truth? Well, it's, it's very simple. You just believe statements that are supported by evidence. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if someone tells you that they're Napoleon, you know, they, they might feel that this must be true. Uh, sincerely, they might say, I'm Napoleon, you know, and, but it doesn't mean that you should believe them. You ask them for their ID, and you look at the idea, and if it doesn't say Napoleon on it, you know how to react to that, right? So the point is, as long as you're guided by evidence, as long as you ask Bernie Madoff to give you your money back, then you protect yourself against Ponzi schemes. And, you know, it's the same thing when you invest uh, your money, you have to make sure that you are not wasting it. Uh, and the way to find out is always by paying attention to evidence, to facts, and being guided by them rather than by rhetoric. Uh, the problem is that very often you will have people trying to fool you. Um, and I say, you know, if this principle is not practiced by all scientists, then, you know, I shouldn't hold the public to a higher standard. Uh, and so the first thing I want to do is make sure that the scientific community follows that principle and that's what I'm trying to practice here. I don't just preach for it. I said that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence would attract a lot of talent into science. I said that when my book came out and I also said that it will bring new funds into science hmm. and I asked people that were engaged in SETI, in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, why don't you just join me in this endeavor so that we can bring more people to science and bring more funds to science. And I now demonstrated that it's true. It's not just preaching, but I actually, over the past few weeks, I got thousands of emails after the Galileo project was announced of enthusiastic supporters that want to help the project, both financially and professionally. And I received funds that were previously not allocated to science. So I rest my case. Avi, this has been a real pleasure to get to, to meet you. And, and as you said, it, this seems like it's the beginning in terms of what, what is next for you and your researchers and the organization generally. So um, I, I'm excited. I know I speak for many people in, in uh, voicing that interest as well. And um, best of luck. I, I uh, really appreciate the fact that you gave me this time and uh, are open to sharing this information with the public. It was great to meet you. Well, thanks for your support. And we will try not to disappoint you. We will... Uh... We appreciate your support and we'll try to do our best to uh, uh, justify your trust in us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 